welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm David Bax. Tyler Smith is on assignment. Joining me is co-host... Scott and I. Scott and I. That's right. You say your name when I you're feel, co-host. Well, when you're a guest, you get introduced. Okay, that's, that's when true. When you're a co-host, you introduce yourself. How you doing, Scott? Uh, I'm doing great. Good, good. Power's um, restored to the apartment. Just got a message. After 30 hours of power outage, we're back. That's that's fantastic. You are back. You are cooking with gas now. But not you're, you're cooking with electricity now is what you're cooking with. I was cooking with gas before. Uh, okay, <laughs> now electricity. Uh, now here's what I want to do. We got, a lot of, we got a lot of show to get to. We have a guest to introduce. We sure do. We got a lot of ground to cover. So I want to tell you, Scott, and I want to tell you at home, the listener, that this episode of Battleship Retention is brought to you by Mubi a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi, is a movie called Behind Convent Walls, and it's a sultry tale of sexual repression and release inside an Italian nunnery. Which is fitting, because later today, tonight we're going to be talking about a sultry tale of sexual repression and release set in an Indian nunnery, right? Not actually a nunnery, but... uh, Okay. (laughs) I guess you're not a big fan of that movie as we thought you were. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thanks for bringing the pedantry. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Retention. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. And if you're watching those things, on the, especially on the mobile apps, let's say you're on the, the bus, right? Very exciting People, way to watch things. Yes, I have People definitely. Could, could be fighting near you. Yeah, you ever you been watching video game sounds all around you? You're watching way. something on a device on the bus, and suddenly there's a nude scene you didn't know was coming up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at least a somewhat covered sex scene. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I remember riding the bus to work, uh, to work, so this was like, you know, pre-9 a.m. Yeah. Uh, and watching an episode of... Uh, uh, togetherness on the HBO. Oh, you're taking uh, your life in your hands there. App. Um, and uh, yeah, there, it, it suddenly became very like, I'm going to weirdly <laughs> like watch this super close and like curl up so no one can see me. Uh, meanwhile, it's like morning rush hour. Uh, anyway, a harsh light of day. Anyway, say you're watching on the bus, right? right. And you don't want it. You're saying video game ads or video game sounds out loud. It's yeah. the worst. You got to block it out. Uh, yeah. You're going to need some, head, some, some earbuds. And uh, if you're cool, if you're in the know, if you're friends with Battleship Retention, uh, then you know that the place to go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors is tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked audio earbuds look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day, all day long, uh, to, to block out the world around me um, and, and enjoy some good tunage. Um, I see you're wearing them right now. I'm uh, very offended. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and they're available already at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension.
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay. Now, Scott. Now, right now. You, uh, why I, I want you to introduce our guest because you're the one who facilitated his being on the show. Yeah. I, in, the, in the past, Tyler and I, we'd know our guest. We'd only allow, allowed him to become within, <laughs> you know... 10 feet of the show before <laughs> when we did the commentary. Uh, you'll have to remind me which commentary that was that you uh, helped us out with when, well, once you're allowed to talk, which is not yet. Um, but since Scott gave this guy the high sign, the okay to actually be on the show, Scott, why don't you introduce our guest? Well, I feel since I was taking Tyler's place, I needed to bring in a guest who I'm also very comfortable making fun of. And so, of course, I called my good friend, Jake Bart. Jake, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. I'm doing great. Well, You're so, going to yeah. want to climb right up on top of that mic, by the way. Okay. Yeah. you right now. Yeah. Thank, um, you. See, thank you, Scott. That's, that's why you guys are the pros. Hey, it took some learning for me, too. Uh, yeah, feel free to scoot in your chair there if you want, whatever you got to do. But yeah, remind me, because they all blur together for me, which commentary were you present for? Um, I was there for the zombie commentary. Oh, that's yes. right. Yes. I-, I was down with the sickness. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, uh, that was a fun time. They're all fun. But, so uh, wait, what were you doing for the zombie commentary? I missed this entire commentary. Oh, you weren't there. Okay. No. He was I, the, like, the uh, like, Lee, like Lee was last time. You mean Joel. Joel, sorry. Lee is the guy who did he, in the past. He was the doorman. It, it was Joel last time, yeah. Door, yeah. Doorman, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, I know the, the hand signal that David makes when he needs another beer. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I didn't do that Very to important. Joel because I don't think Joel would get me a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joel does not care about that job very much. I'm just going to say that for the future. He's not uh, invested in furthering his opportunities with the Battleship Retention Empire. Uh, Jake, okay. though? Okay. Jake's on point. <laughs> uh, noted. Yeah. Yeah. Joel's never been on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's but stop. But Jake beating. is also a scholar of cinema. That's true. Jake is like most. After fashion. Uh, <laughs> like many of the guests on Battleship Retention, including Scott, uh, Jake probably has seen more movies and knows more about <laughs> movies than I do, uh, but maybe is not quite as talented a blowhard uh, as I am. It remains um, to be seen. It's only a matter of time. Uh, I feel like even in the couple years I've known you, Jake, you've got to be more of a blowhard and more that, comfortable with that status. That's that's the goal. All Scott, right. you're like a. I feel like you're like a stealth blowhard. Yeah, because I feel like you're kind of a soft-spoken guy, but you're also. But once you get to know me, yeah, yeah. It's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, you're. I think you're often off-puttingly confident in your opinions. <laughs> I have been told that by multiple people. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we've done enough uh, uh, talking shit. Um, uh, about one another we we do definitely need to get into the topic but i do want to do the thing that we do now on the on the podcast which is um uh, bring some attention to the website uh and what's going on there now first off the most important thing on the website is the things that you can buy and speaking of commentaries our most recent commentary i mean all of them are still available including the the zombentary we're going to call it right. um, that that Jake Hank helped out with. But our most recent one, which is the Space Invaders commentary in which we, uh, Tyler and I and a bunch of friends, including Scott and not Jake, um, <laughs> talked about the thing, Predator, Independence Day and signs um, back to back to back. Uh, and those are available uh, on the website. Uh, but 
what else is going on on the website? Let me think. Let me let me get. Let me, we've had a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff going on uh, uh, recently. But I would say the uh, well, Tyler uh, reviewed that Christian movie. Um, he sure did. Which is what is uh, that movie called, David? It's called The Case for Christ. Right. And normally Tyler keeps his like Christian movie reviews to more right. than lesson, but he felt that this one was you know worth talking about as a movie and not just as a Christian Christian movie. And it's a it's an interesting review. It's worth worth, worth checking out that review. Um, of course, Sarah is still working her way through the top 100. You've got all of my uh, uh, TCM Classic Film Fest you sure coverage, um, which uh, you can read as a supplement to this episode or listen to this episode as a supplement to the, uh, both to the, the same time. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Get the, the full experience. Um, and, uh, West looks at, uh, Elmer Bernstein's music for the 10 commandments over at musical notation. Uh, Alexander Alex wrote about, uh, the King of comedy. Uh, there's reviews this week. Um, almost entirely from me, uh, this week. Um, but of, I'm a blowhard. Uh, what's that? <laughs> but I'm the blowhard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, let's see. Reviews of Norman, The Lost City of Z, uh, sorry, The Lost City of Zed, uh, Tommy's Honor, and Jeremiah Tower uh, uh, are all for me. And, and Aaron uh, reviewed A Quiet Passion, the new Terrence Davies film. Uh, Tyler reviewed Firestarter, the home video for the home video uh, subsection. Uh, my dog is re- telling me to is reviewing this podcast. If right only now. we'd <laughs> talked about Tyler's review of Firestarter a couple of weeks back at a little restaurant, we'd have gotten a lot further that night. You and I, David. Um, wait, what happened? You don't remember trivia night? Oh, Firestarter that's right. was one of yes. two Stephen King titles. Yes, that we, we just couldn't get. think of. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that that still uh, still irks me. That, that was a crushing defeat because it was. Yeah, the the question was yet to name ten. There was what was it? It was like there are twelve. Yeah. Stephen King novels that have one word titles, name 10 of them or whatever. Yeah. And we got eight. And the two we didn't get are both novels that I read. Yeah. It was Desperation and Firestarter. And we would have won that night if not for that. Is that true? That is true. Isn't Desperation a made for TV film? Um, well, it has I, nothing to do with the film, uh, it's the novel. Oh, the novels. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, my dog is being very annoying. I don't know if anyone's going to hear it. Uh, and of course, Scott's got the LA report. Um, uh, yeah, this is too late for anyone listening to this episode, but tomorrow night at UCLA, they're having a live Benshi performance with a silent Japanese movie. Cool. Um, let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. We're here to talk about the TCM Classic Film Festival, <laughs> and we're going to go... Uh, Jack I'll, is loving it. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to pass this off to you because we're going to go day by day. All right. And I didn't go at all on Thursday, so what did you guys see on Thursday? Uh, I started off the festival by seeing Requiem for a Heavyweight, which is an adaptation of a teleplay that aired on, I think, Playhouse 90. Uh, have you, you've, you've studied some television, Jake. Um, yeah, I believe it was a Rod uh, yeah, Sterling teleplay, right? Rod Sterling. Sterling, yeah. sorry. Uh, oh, wait, is it Sterling? It says Sterling here in the... I, I think it's Sterling. But That's what I thought, what? too. But then I was reading this TCM app, which you would think would have the correct information. It says Sterling. Um, anyway, the same guy who directed the teleplay also directed the film, which is very interesting because the film is super cinematic. There's like... Some point of view shots at the beginning following this boxer who gets knocked out and then he stumbles his way back into the is it a dressing room for boxers it's probably not a dressing room there's like a sports term for that uh yeah locker room locker room but it's only for one guy locker room i think of many guys uh, no yeah, I, I guess it's a right i don't know what it is i mean depending on the venue it could it could fit 
one athlete or numerous. But in boxing movies, there's always just the one room for each guy. Yeah, I know, I know he's got exactly the guy rubbing him down. And, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he goes back to that room and finds out that he's been so injured that he can't uh, fight again. And so it's just him after 16 years of fighting trying to build his life back up again. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, very earnest in that kind of late 50s, early 60s drama kind of way where the performances are very eager and uh, the direction very impassioned. And I, I quite liked it. Uh, I didn't think it was it's a little pat towards the end. But Anthony Quinn plays the boxer. He does a really nice job. Jackie Gleason plays his manager. He's kind of a scumbag trying to fleece the guy. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting picture. It's a good way, kind of way to start the festival. Solid, evolving drama. That's all you saw on Thursday? That's all I saw on Thursday. Okay, so now that I've calmed down, Jack, I want to talk about just the festival in general real quick before yeah. we move on into, into Friday, the first day we were all there. I saw something on Thursday oh, as well. Oh, you did? Yeah. Sorry, I thought you said beforehand that you didn't. Nope. I, I misunderstood. No problem. Uh, well, okay, in, in any case, let's talk about the festival in general <laughs> now that I've calmed down my dog. Um, uh, I love this festival. This is only my second year going. What is this for you? Uh, this is my second year as well. Second year. Scott, this you've been going. This is my seventh. Oh, this dog. No listener can hear this, by the way. We've been over this before. Yeah, but I feel like he's distressed. Oh. I, um, I don't know why he's... Anyway, oh, this is frustrating. <laughs> this is like bad podcasting, uh, and I. this is why I don't like doing this at my place. <laughs> um, there you go. Okay. Uh, um, it's... Uh, it, it, it's it's a magical place, TCM Classic it, Home it Fest. It is indeed. Uh, it, it really does make me feel... It, it gives me a very similar feeling to, before I became jaded, how I used to feel at San Diego Comic-Con, which is this feeling of, like, I'm among my people or people who are even more... Like, the things that make me weird to people that I know in my regular life... Like these people are even more that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I'm the I'm I'm the one who's wedding wading into deeper waters here. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna steal actually a quote from a friend of Battleship Pretension, uh, Mariah E. Gates, who calls uh-huh. it Camp TCM, uh-huh. and I think it really does have that uh, communal sort of feel where. Even for us hardened Angelinos, for uh, for a weekend, Hollywood Boulevard actually becomes you know a great place to be. And you're not just <laughs> right. wading through crowds of tourists. It's like a, a a true festival in that way. Yeah, it's fun. Like um, I think uh, Scott and I talked about Scott and I talked about this um, <laughs> when we did the AFI Fest wrap up last fall. Um, it's fun for the Hollywood and Highland area, an area that I avoid at all costs, <laughs> except for two weeks a year, essentially, um, suddenly becomes ground zero for, for something great, be it AFI or, or TCM. Uh, it's also a much more enthusiastic crowd, because Jake and I go to uh, rep screenings all around town all throughout the year, and I think you would agree that the TCM crowd... Well, they can be a little unruly. They're more enthusiastic than the average kind of well old movie weirdos, and it, it attracts so many people from out of town. Yeah, totally. That you know, this is this is their time to really engage their sort of cinephile muscles. Yeah, you know, sure. you know what I mean. That you really and and you feel that that excitement and that sort of. Uh, Youthful exuberance. <laughs> Even yeah. if the attendees are mostly quite old. Yes, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. Yeah, TCM Fest definitely makes me feel young again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but speaking of the exuberant uh, uh, attendees, I did have one uh, situation. Uh, now, I'll quickly explain to the listener the, the, the system, the line system at TCM, which is that 
you line up for a movie, however long beforehand you think you need to line up. Mm-hmm. At the one hour mark, roughly, they give you cue cards. Not, yeah. Not like Saturday Night Live. <laughs> they don't have like your monologue on them. Right. But they have the number that represents your place in line. At that point, once you have your cue card, you have a half an hour to just mm-hmm. go, you know, you know, get some food, use the bathroom, whatever you need to do uh, to kill some time. And that, that cue card marks your place in line. Yeah. Now, for the Chinese theater, the first hundred or so places in line are right there in the courtyard over right. like the footprints and handprints and everything. And then it carries on upstairs. So what that means, and I understand that at first glance could be a bit confusing. If you try to line up for a, a movie in the Chinese less than half an hour beforehand, you might be told you need to go upstairs even though you're seeing almost no one in line. Oh, you yeah. Know, so you, you know yeah, I mean? for sure. There was a person behind me <laughs> for, uh, this is for um, The Awful Truth, uh, which we'll get to later. Um, person, She was in, in front of me who could not fathom this and was <laughs> like, she was yelling, she was like, I run an annual convention of over 10,000 people and we never have problems like this. And I'm just like, it's not even a problem. It's not a problem. I'm just, I'm just like, I need to go upstairs, but I kind of want to see this. But then I just like walked upstairs and then she like stormed upstairs to the person handing out the tickets upstairs. And she was like, she was like, I hope you know, you've got a rebellion brewing down there. And I wanted to be like, no, it's, it's just this lady. Like no one else is did, upset. Did she start to commiserate with you then? Cause that's always a danger in, I, I, in line. You become the, oh yeah, I've sure. definitely had that before. I think I um, had it. I gave her enough uh, of a birth to not let that happen. <laughs> Did those tweaked audio earbuds help you maintain <laughs> yeah, distance that's, from that's unruly citizens? Uh, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, so yeah, we established that TCM is is fun. Um, uh, the one other thing that I wanted to address this isn't a complaint. This is a question for you guys. All right. So the theme this year was comedy, which is I, would, I, I was so happy. <laughs> like I feel like <laughs> feel like I needed it in a way. Um, uh, given what's going on in this country and uh, it made the communal aspect of uh, being with a bunch of other movie nerds even feel even closer because everyone's laughing together but there was one movie that played that on on the one hand I think Best in Show is maybe one of the five funniest movies ever made yeah but for the TCM Classic Film Fest how far back are we going before we decide that something's a classic I feel like that's not even the most recent thing they've played but I'm not 100% sure I think it was the most recent thing they played this year. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. But I mean in the past. I feel like they played other stuff from the late 90s, early 2000s, and of course, the further back you go in the festival, nearer to that time it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't bother me, but it does seem like, don't we need... I I guess I'm a guy who likes rules. I'm like, don't we need... (laughs) Like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I feel like, shouldn't we put a 25-year, like... Yeah, I... Like Postcards from the Edge? That's fine. That movie's 27 years old as opposed to 17 years old. That, That qualifies for the Hall of Fame. Best in Show is too new. Yeah, I was a little taken aback by it. I I generally agree with you. I think it's a a, a little too new. Again, a great movie. As as a dog owner, you know it it, it hits home. But um, yeah, I think certainly. And that, that's what two thousand one, two thousand, two thousand. Yeah. So I mean, we're even talking same century here. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, depending on what, which which year you start. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, but yeah. So do you? Do you have less of a problem? I the? don't care. People don't get care. really up in arms about this every year, uh, but they still play lots of old movies, and I just go see those. I guess I'm not up in arms, but it's just the part of me that likes rules and order. No, I hear you. Is and like, I wasn't saying you were getting up in arms. I'm just saying there's a certain segment of the TCM crowd that is very concerned about the creep of new movies. 
And and I might add, David, the rules don't apply. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, the rules don't apply, which will be at the CCM Classic Film Fest next year. <laughs> God willing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'd have, I'd have no problem with that. Um, anyway, uh, but I guess I just feel like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has it right. 25 years, you know? On that level, they have it right, yeah. <laughs> and on that level, even though now it leads to things like uh, well, Tupac's in the Hall of Fame. That makes me old. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, good for good for Tupac. Um, and good for that dude from Pearl Jam. I don't know. I know we're getting off topic, but did you see that? No. Um, the, the guy, because Pearl Jam was right. uh, uh, induced, I guess, inducted? Inducted. This year. And <laughs> they, they were induced. <laughs> they were induced into the Hall of Fame. Um, and they, one of the guys from Pearl Jam... Uh, uh, wore a shirt that just had a list of great bands that aren't in the Hall of Fame on it. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty cool. Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. What, like, I know Can was on there. I don't think uh, Kiss is. The still. Replacements, uh, probably. I know that's... Probably. Uh, that's... Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame doesn't need Kiss. I'm not a Kiss guy. You're a Kiss oh, fan. Oh, I am totally a Kiss fan. Oh. That's interesting. Why? What, what is it about Kiss that you like? Their music's awesome. <laughs> It's just like pure ridiculous rock and roll. I think I like Kiss in the way that some people like professional wrestling. Okay, like, that makes sense. I feel like there's so, probably a lot of crossover. There probably is, but so much about it is pretty fake, and you have to kind of buy into the fact that like uh, Peter Chris has like his same monologue at every show <laughs> that he just goes off on. Right. Uh, I, I guess I feel like um, there's a lot of metal that I like that's like that, where I know that it's kind of tongue in cheek, right? You know. Um, but I guess Kiss, maybe I just. I feel like they maybe they carry it too far <laughs> to the point where they never like or when I say they I think I'm just talking about Gene Simmons yeah. like never lets the 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 facade down that's what's beautiful about it and I find him kind of repugnant oh for sure indeed <laughs> and no so that, that keeps it. me from liking liking kiss anyway <laughs> Let's get the back. The TCM classic film. <laughs> yeah, what else did you see? What did you see on Thursday, Jake? Um, on Thursday, I saw The Man Who Knew Too Much. That's the 1934 oh, yeah. uh, Hitchcock film. Have you guys seen this? Yeah, yeah I saw it this before. when Criterion put it out. So it's been a few years. But. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it has uh, a very funny uh, chair-throwing scene. Yes. It's a scene of people throwing chairs at each other. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, uh, it I, also has a guy, the, the main character, I forget the actor's name, wears uh, an overcoat with massive patch pockets on. That's yes. the, the thing that I remember is just how massive his pockets are. Yeah. And like he's carrying bowling balls around in there. I think what you guys are pointing out is uh, really one of the things that I love about Hitchcock in the 30s, right? He just has, uh, it, it's a different personality than his yeah, films sure. with Paramount in America in the 50s. And I really think you, uh, you pick up on that in The Man Who Knew Too Much. One of the things that I really loved about it was you get this sort of German expressionist flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, with a lot of the a lot of sort of the cutaways in the way he's organizing scenes, and um, for me that's just uh, that's just Hitchcock at at his finest. And um, of course, I was expecting this to be sort of a placid start to my uh, to my fest. You know, man who knew too much. It was against the opening night, so I thought not a lot of people coming out. Um, lo and behold, TCM announces Martin Scorsese. Uh-huh. will be providing an introduction and suddenly my you know uh, not so busy night became something that I needed to line up an hour and a half early for <laughs> to get a halfway decent seat but um, Scorsese's introduction was 
great as expected. Um, and yeah, it was just a really fun time. Great Peter Lorre performance. Bit of a different performance for him. He's a lot mm-hmm. more uh, self-possessed, not the sort of sniveling coward of Casablanca. Uh, which uh, which theater was this? Uh, this was at the Egyptian. Okay. Yeah, this so, is the first of the nitrate programming. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay, well, which well, is why Scorsese introduced it. Let's get into it. <laughs> well, I know you were a big fan last year of the uh, Visions of Light. Oh yes, the, the, uh, the, the Passion of Joan of Arc with the live uh, yeah, or, and or, or that was chorus. that was sort of their centerpiece last year, and I feel like to counter that this year they needed to do four nitrate films which i don't know does one does one of you guys want to take why nitrate is so important oh, and why well, you're, you're, what you're looking at is a is a crossfire type of situation here where i'm because i'm where david uh, is opposed for no reason i'm at all. reflexively <laughs> opposed to uh purism and nostalgia and traditionalism uh because I think it's it boils down mostly to just uh, affectation and fetish- fetishization. You would not have done well during these <laughs> nitrate intros, which were all incredibly uh, what you just described. Yeah, very much so. But I, I, I didn't see any of the nitrate. That wasn't. I wasn't like <laughs> protesting. Um, I, I didn't like intentionally avoid the nitrate uh, screenings. I did see two thirty-five millimeter screenings, but I do generally. Uh, uh, get annoyed by that sort of, uh, you know, that I, I've already used every word that I could use, but that, that fetishization of, of the presentation format, like I would, I mean, yeah, nitrate. Okay. I understand you and I'll let you guys talk about what it is, but by virtue of something being nitrate, that means it's at least like 60 years old, which to me is like, is that really gonna, like, is that really going to be preferable? to something that's been restored and uh, is going to look uh, crisper and more consistent. Well, I think uh, as with anything else, it's a, it's a case by case sort of, uh, sort of deal. I don't know. I know some prints are better than others. And I've seen some, some God awful DCPs uh, avoid the DCP of meet me in St. Louis at all costs. Um, but you know, it's but not- is that, is that, is the problem there DCP, or is the problem there that it was a bad restoration? Uh, it was. I don't know if it was even restored. It was a bad transfer, certainly. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think with this nitrate series, you kind of uh, you kind of got a sense that. I think each of the films, it, nitrate really worked in their favor. Can you guys explain to the listeners what nitrate? What that yeah, means? Yeah, basically, it was the stock. In trade for for celluloid pre nineteen fifty nineteen fifty fifty one yeah that's yeah right. early fifties uh, before they developed safety film and the reason they had to develop safety film is that nitrate is incredibly flammable and as we all know from Inglorious Bastards right yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I think there's always the element of like danger in there where people are a little turned on by that uh, the fact that <laughs> the whole place could go up in flames is very appealing in a certain way. But at the same time... It, at least you died watching The Man Who Wasn't There. Yeah. The Man, the man who, who Knew there. Too Much. The Man Who Knew Too Much. Ugh. Um, but also, it is just... I'm going to edit that. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it is just the format on which the films were printed originally, and in a sense, it is the format for which they were shot and intended. And I think in some small way, you can glean that, at least from the two that I saw. Um, there's a sense from the way they look that it is just different than certainly digital or even just regular 35 millimeter film. But this is where 
I start to where my my hackles start to get up. Anytime someone talks about like the way that it was intended to be seen, okay. like because that's impossible to pin down because there were you know different prints were made you know perhaps at, at, at different labs or at different times. You know one person might have it, no you know two prints that were that were out at the same time might not look look the same. Yeah, but Do the, you know what I mean like the idea that there is like one right way for a movie to to be seen is where is where i think um and maybe it maybe i'm masking it well, I, maybe i'm masking my uh uh obsessive compulsiveness with <laughs> with my annoyance with the nostalgia of it because because if it's true you're screwed because if it's if it, yeah like i'm saying if it's true that there is no one right way that the movie was supposed to be seen then why give myself the agita of trying to <laughs> trying to track that down of trying to see a movie in some some uh pure you know some some platonic ideal that doesn't exist well um just to counter that a little because all the films that i'm going to be talking about today i saw on either uh, nitrate or 35 millimeter film really um that was a that was that was by design. I take um, it? somewhat yes, but not. Um, I didn't avoid anything because it was a DCP. Okay. Um, I feel like with a DCP, it is it, it is more prescriptive, right? That it's all coming from the same digital files and the same DCPs are are being made. Okay. So really, what you have there is you, you have less room for the sort of. Um, the sort of particular experience that that you were you were talking about, right? Uh, yeah, you're preaching to the choir here. To me, that's a selling yeah. point. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. See, like I, I like the idea of like a, a print that's kind of circulated and coming back. But again, that's the that's probably coming back to the back to the nostalgia that you find so abhorrent. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, like I feel like you know we saw a movie. Uh, uh, Scott and I both, Scott and I both saw uh, change your a, name, Scott. A King, a King Vidor film that we'll talk about later. Um, that was actually my favorite thing in the festival. But there were like, you know, marked differences from one reel to the next. Oh, sure. There were occasionally like, you know, lines, uh, scratches, just running up the screen for uh, entire shots or longer. Um, and I, I just, I, I'm not charmed by that. <laughs> to me. I guess I do like the idea. Maybe it's because I am like a hardline or tourist. I like the idea of a DCP being like, this is, uh, you know, the, 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 the color timing, the digital intermediate and all that stuff was approved by the director and, or the cinematographer. And then that's what it looks like. Not at this stage. Um, most of those people are dead. Uh, yeah, no, They're you're right. dead, David. You're right. When, yes, when we're talking about the old movies, yes, most the not all of them. dead. <laughs> not all the 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 um you know the movie opened with or the movie, the festival opened with in the heat of the night. Yeah, uh, where Norman Jewison was present at the screening. I wasn't there. I don't think either of you guys. They were don't let, They only let in the high level pass holders. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I know someone who was there. Who yeah, who gave me the rundown. Um, uh, so it's not, yeah. When we say classic film, like I said, I guess I said about Best in Show, like there's there is newer stuff. I think the newest thing I saw was from 1984. Uh, right. I think was the newest movie that I saw at this year's. Festival. Anyway, let's take this format debate into some applied examples. Okay, so moving into, into Friday. Saw. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Okay, well I, I can start then on Friday because I started with a 35 millimeter uh, uh, film, and that was Redheaded Wo- Redheaded Woman. Did were you at this? Yes, I was there as well. Uh, okay, and this, uh, 
unlike the King Vidor uh, movie, I, I'm like avoiding saying the names of movies until we get to them. <laughs> it's stupid, but like I like the element Keep of surprise. Keep some suspense. Yeah, exactly. Unlike that, I felt like this print was in good shape. Yes. It looked yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Jean Harlow looked uh, looked great. Not, I feel like she, you know, Jean Harlow, she, how old was she at the time of the movie? Um, she looks like she's about 16. And yeah, so I have trouble she, like, seeing I her. believe she was in her early 20s, but uh, Scott can. I'm going to look it up. You guys start talking about it. Uh, it yeah, I think um, it is, uh, uh, again, as long as we're being pedantic on this episode and talking about pinning down terms, like, uh, Redheaded Woman is a movie. It's from 1932, and therefore it is what we refer to as pre-code, even though it's like it's not, sort of a misnomer. The, yeah, yeah. The the code really started in 1930, right? Mm-hmm. But when people say pre-code, they're talking about the. I guess I'm I'm not sure what the level of knowledge of our listeners is. When people say pre-code, they're talking about the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, what they're talking about is the era that Joseph Breen oversaw the Hayes Code, which is roughly 34 to 54. Is yeah, that, is that yeah. right? So anything pre 34 is pre-code mm-hmm. um and or actually beyond 54 uh i know the code lasted beyond 54 but was joseph breen still oh maybe not yeah i think that's when he th- those 20 years were when he okay when he oversaw it um the code technically lasted into the early 60s i think right late 60s even mm-hmm. yeah oh, 68 really? oh wow um uh yeah that's right okay 68 uh is the year of Night of the Living Dead, which yeah. is uh, a movie that would not have passed uh, any right. code. Gene <laughs> um, Harlow is 21, by the way. Okay. Uh, again, she looks 16, so I have a little bit of trouble, like, uh, seeing her as the, like, uh, you know, the the sexual, like, temptress, temptress that she is in the movie. But this movie embodies what people are talking about when they talk about <laughs> pre-code. That's what I wanted to get to, because it is... Uh, um, luridly sexual, yes, uh, and lascivious, is, uh, yes, <laughs> and unapologetic about it. And you know, she is a um, uh, you know repeated adulteress and homewrecker, and everything ends up great for her. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, spoilers for the end of the movie. She's got a great but, dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah um, and it's. Uh, uh, I thought. Uh, I did think she was. She was terrific. Uh, what are your thoughts, Jake? Um, yeah, I think you're. You're summing it up pretty well. Um, I. I want to touch a bit on the introduction by Carrie Beauchamp, which. Um, it's print. It's spelled Beauchamp, but whenever they announce her, they say Beecham. Yeah, I. So. I always want to say Beauchamp because that's how it's spelled. Is it Beecham? That whenever they introduce her. I think her, you're right. Yeah, that is what they've said. Whenever they introduce her, they say yeah. Carrie Beecham. Yeah. But yeah, her name, any any person with, uh, you know, half a high school education <laughs> who looked at that name on paper would pronounce it Beauchamp or Beauchamp. Yes. Uh, but she does say Beecham. And she is, like, yeah, We uh, I, I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. Jake, <laughs> no, don't but worry. But I guess you're new and I don't trust you to actually carry the episode. <laughs> Clearly, I don't know um, the difference between Beauchamp and Beecham. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things about TCM Fest is that they often have, they have these introductions. And some of them are, you know, Q&As with the actual filmmakers, as we'll talk about. You talked about Martin Scorsese. Um I saw at least one film uh, introduced by Leonard Malton. I think I actually saw two films introduced by Leonard Malton. Um, uh, and so a lot of them are big names, but then there are people who are only big names to this community, I guess. Yeah. Um, and Carrie Beecham is one of them. And she, but she is, if I see that she's introducing a film, that's, that's, that's to me part of the selling point of that film. Cause she's a great, 
uh, not only a great resource for the background and history of every movie, but she's a great storyteller. Like, yes. She really sets up uh, uh, the stories and, and, and gives you the the, the sense and, and all the fun of, of uh, and, and, and prepares you to go into a movie. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I'm just wondering how you reacted, as as you were saying earlier, a hardline auteurist, when uh-huh. <laughs> uh, she kind of contextualized this film yeah. as a product of Irving Thalberg, because it's an MGM production, um, Anita Luce, who was the the screenwriter who adapted the best-selling novel, um, and sort of Harlow, the three of them coming together, and the director, whose name I had to write down, Jack Conway, yeah, Jack. or Con- I'm sorry, Conway, um, he was kind of incidental to the uh, to the whole project. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm wondering how you how you took that. Uh, I would say it shows. Yeah. Um, it's not, I mean, the movie is a lot of fun, but I don't think it's a directorial uh, victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, and I'll talk about, I guess I'm going to, I guess I'll tease a little bit the next, or maybe I'll talk a little bit about the next movie I saw, which was the, oh, uh, um, I saw t- Howard Hawks 20th Century. This was a DCP, so I know you weren't there, Jim. <laughs> um, um, and this was only two years later. This is a 1934 film, and yet this one you can feel the director's hand. And a big, a big part of it is what I'm, ta- uh, what I'm talking about is in Red Redheaded Woman. Like every scene seems to sort of end with the film version of the curtain closing and opening, mm-hmm. and there's like a fade out. That's fade such into a the pre-code thing. I almost yeah. like. I almost don't even. That doesn't bother me anymore. It used to bother me a lot, and I don't think it bothers me, but it feels uh, less. Filmic, I guess no, is I what hear I'm what saying, saying. Um, to me. Whereas, uh, and it also makes, I think, the effect it has is it makes the movie seem longer than it is to me. For sure. Red-Haired Woman is only 79 minutes. Yeah. 20th Century is, I think, 90 to 95 minutes. And it would, I would have, if you'd, if you'd pulled me on which one was which, I absolutely would have switched them because 20th Century has such uh, uh, a sense of command from beginning to end right. that mm-hmm. it absolutely just flies by. Yeah, I, think, I think Red Hood Woman's pretty well directed. I, don't know, I like me some Jack Conway. He also directed a movie called Libeled Lady a couple years later that is really one of my favorite comedies of the 30s. Um, but Red Hood Woman, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but it has, he does a lot, I think, with those kind of spaces in between scenes of suggesting a lot of what happens in that very kind of pre-code teasing way right. that makes yeah. those ellipses to no, me I, pretty effective. And I don't want to say that I, you know, that I didn't like the movie. I, I like, yeah, totally. That was one thing with this year's festival. This is only my second year, but I didn't see a movie I didn't like. Oh, okay. Uh, whereas last year I saw Buenos Aires, Mrs. Campbell, um, <laughs> which I, uh, um, got, was quite bored during, uh, <laughs> the best part was Gina Lola Brigida being there beforehand. Right. Um, but there were no movies that, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I tweeted that one of the part of the inherent anxiety of TCM Fest is that no matter what movie you're seeing, you know, you're missing out on like at yeah, least two great absolutely. movies. Uh, and there was no point this year that I was like, damn, I should have gone to that other movie. Nice. Um, anyway, um, well, you have more to say on Red Hooded Woman? Um, no, I just I wanted to refer back to the curtain, the sense of a curtain uh-huh. opening and closing. And um, when we were talking about pre-code, understanding that pre-code is still being censored. So I think uh, right. Beecham in her introduction also said that sense of burlesque is kind of intentional to sort of uh, appease the censors in that, hmm. oh no, this is, exa- this is exaggeration, this is satirical, uh, look at what we're doing, we're just having fun here. Um, also, I thought she uh, prefaced the politics of the film very well, uh, which I think can be a tricky thing at TCM Fest. 
right? Because how do we take these films that are very much products of their time and don't necessarily square with the ideologies of the day? And uh, I think that's one of the great services that the um, that the introductions can can serve. But you know, I think uh, I've seen movies at TCM Fest and just in life older movies that are uh, way more cringy in terms of their oh, sexual politics than Red-Headed Woman in a way. Certainly, like, I think it's more progressive than yeah, you, you would initially expect. In, in, in a way, even though it, you know, it, it might be kind of reductive to in, in the way it uh, depicts, you know, female power, but in an age when the president doesn't want to, the vice president doesn't want to be alone with a woman, <laughs> to see a woman with so much sexual agency is actually, I think, uh, I found that quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we don't I feel like we don't see enough of that today. Like, yeah, totally. uh, we, we don't see enough movies where women are, are taking control of their own sex lives uh, today. Um, we will we will move on, but I wanted to say, you mentioned Jack Conway had directed uh, Libel Lady. Um, now, this is one of those things, IMDb, I always feel like I take some stuff with a grain of salt, especially okay. like the older you go. But uh, the 1937 A Star, A Star is Born, the one with Janet Gaynor and Frederick yeah. March, um, the best A Star is Born, if you ask me. Uh, right. I, I think the uh, Judy Garland, James Mason one is overlong and overrated. Hot take. Um, <laughs> hot take. Uh, the 37 one is the best. Uh, and is credited to director William Wellman, but according to IMDb, there was also some directing work done by Jack Conway on A Star is Born. Interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, I thought that was worth, worth mentioning because I, I, I do really love that movie. I also saw a pre-code movie first thing in the morning. Uh, I'm on training at my new, new job, so I have weird hours, so I was able to see a movie at 9 a.m., <laughs> for no reason uh-huh. uh, and I went to see Rafter Romance which I'd seen several years ago and really enjoyed and was pleased to revisit at least in part again I had to leave a little early because those introductions sometimes run long mm. uh, but this is a fantastic kind of programmer comedy again real short like 72 minutes because that's what you want out of these but it's just Ginger Rogers and Norman excuse me Ginger Rogers and Norman Foster uh, as two just flat broke people living in the same New York apartment building who their landlord concocts a scheme to have them share an apartment where they won't have to run into each other. They just split it. You know, one of them takes it from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. The other takes it from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Theoretically, the never the two shall never meet. Of course, they end up they do. They end up falling in love. The whole deal. But as thoroughly predictable as it is, it's just so funny and spirited throughout. It has this great kind of set where they track the camera vertically along the various floors of the apartment building, so you can watch them kind of climb all the way up. Oh, cool. Um, Ginger Rogers, this was one of her first kind of starring roles. It was the same year as Gold Diggers and 42nd Street. But this was one of the first where she really had a chance to lead it. And she carries it exceptionally well. Um, has a great supporting cast. It's kind of just a perfectly pleasing. It's exactly what you want from an old-fashioned comedy. And uh, the introduction for that, um, it turns out that this film was lost for many years. Because I guess when Marion C. Cooper ran MGM after his term there was over... He was given a chance to just have the rights to six movies, and this was one of them he picked. Huh. And so he held the exclusive rights to this for decades just on the hopes of remaking it until eventually he sold the rights to the elements away to some other company for a tax break that ended up not happening at all. So he was pissed at them for giving him a raw deal, and so one company held the elements, and he held the rights to actually show it. So it just didn't wow. get screened for decades after wow. that until TCM kind of stepped in and sorted it all out. That's and crazy. now the TCM DVD is out of print, and so we're back to square one. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
All right. Uh, so I already mentioned 20th century. I won't say uh, much more. Just that, um, uh, yeah, John Barrymore and Carol Lombard are just uh, fantastic together. Um, uh, and uh, it's, um, you know, there's 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 overacting as a pejorative, and then there's overacting when overacting is absolutely called for. <laughs> and John Barrymore is just reaching for the back of the yeah. next theater over. He's out of control <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> He's yeah, down and, the block. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's and it's fantastic. Uh, anything else on Friday uh, for you, Jay? Um, yeah, I saw Laura, the Otto okay. Preminger film. This was the second in the. Uh, for nitrate film series. Um, I had seen Laura before. It was great seeing it with a theater. I'd forgotten uh, that it's actually pretty funny. Oh, yeah. Um, walking out, I compared it to All About Eve, and I think it has that uh, similar sort of acidic sense of humor. But, um, yeah, Preminger is, uh, you know, just one of the one of the great masters, and uh, seeing it on the big screen was was a real pleasure. So Yeah, I actually saw that a couple weeks ago just because I wanted to watch Laura again. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't see it at TCM Fest, but that same kind of wit and all about Eve definitely I thought of that too because it is in some ways mostly just about society people and like yeah. they're what really stood out to me is the fact that this area that's a crime scene, uh, Laura's apartment, keeps mm-hmm. becoming like a hotter and hotter social scene. Yeah. More and more people just keep showing up just to hang out. Well, and it's another movie that is, I think it's around or under 90 minutes. And yeah, it's got to be. I am really struck by just how fluidly it moves. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think at once you can get a sense of Preminger's sort of theatrical uh, background with the way he's sort of uh, blocking out his actors within the space, but also there's just such a seamless command of that sort of classical Hollywood technique yeah. that I think really uh, really serves the film well. This wasn't Preminger's first film, was it? I can't think of many more earlier. I, uh, he, he had done some work in, uh, in I believe, Germany. Okay, yeah. Um, and I, I think he had done some directing for Fox, but mostly served as a producer, and the director for Laura fell out, and he oh, okay. stepped in, and it was kind mm. of his entree to... Hollywood yeah. power. This is definitely the earliest film I've seen. So, Anything else on Friday for you guys? Yeah, I got two more, actually. Oh, okay. Um, which I'll try to go through pretty quickly. Uh, Please I, do. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I, I rewatched most of uh, Ernst Lubitsch's So This Is Paris, which is a fantastic uh, silent comedy. Uh, it had a great score by, who I look up in one second, Donald. Stop's moving so slow. Donald Sosin. He, uh, he didn't write the score, but it was like perfectly timed to the movie. I was really blown away by the work he did with it. Uh, but the movie starts out with a couple rehearsing kind of Arabian Nights uh, play of sorts, and they're you know in a marital spat very hilariously in very Lubitschy fashion. Uh, and then he kind of sits down for a rest by the window. Across the way, there's another woman reading a book about an Arabian Nights romance, and she's you know holding it to her chest and just swooning away. And she looks across and sees this guy in an Arabian Nights costume just sitting in the window. And then her husband comes home and sees her looking at him and gets very perturbed by this and goes over to confront the guy. While he's crossing the street, the guy leaves the room, leaving only his wife, and so uh, the other husband comes in the room, sees the wife there, and instantly recognizes her as a former lover. And we're off to the races <laughs> with very Lubitschian uh, marital comedy uh, that is really spectacular, and I hope, I think it was recently restored, so I hope it finally, finally gets on home video. Uh, 
again, I'm going to say, like, how fun is it that there were so many comedies? Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. It's, uh, I mean, uh, people, long-time listeners about Pretension know that Tyler and I are big comedy nerds, and I'll often argue for comedy being uh, uh, as respected as other forms of, of storytelling, and uh, I definitely uh, am glad that TCM did this uh, this year. Yeah. Uh, one more from Friday. I saw those redheads from Seattle in 3D because if you show a 3D musical, I will be there. Uh, you wouldn't expect, however, there to be a 3D musical about a woman and her family traveling to the uh, Yukon in, I'd say, the late 18th century, early 20th, or no, late 19th century, early 20th, uh, only to find that her husband has died in a newspaper battle. Um, so it's a very strange kind of movie. But sorry, what's a newspaper, newspaper battle? battle? Like, oh, you know, they got hit with a newspaper. Like, no, you like, know, like, each other with you know, like the rubber band, like <laughs> in like that, that old gag in the old weird America. There'd be the warring newspapers, uh-huh. and uh, you know, one of them would maybe take out the other party in an attempt to gain supremacy. Oh. That's a newspaper battle. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very tonally odd movie, but I, I found it quite winning in and its then, own particular way. Uh, this was at the Egyptian. No, this was at uh, the. Chinese six. Oh, it's one of the larger mm. multiplexes, but yeah. Um, okay. I guess let's move on to Saturday. Um, I already made some mention of, uh, the awful truth, but I did, uh, I did want to point out between redheaded woman, the awful truth. And then another movie I'll talk about, uh, for, for Sunday, uh, divorce was a, like a real big theme for me. <laughs> just, I don't know if it's, well, they had a whole subsection that was just, I think divorce comedies. Yes. Oh, I didn't even yeah. realize. Yeah. Uh, I guess I saw three of those. Um, uh, and, and yeah, the, um, the awful truth. I do feel like, I mean, it's, it's, it's great, but I guess I feel like it's neither as to talk about the movies I've talked about. So, far it's neither as funny as 20th century or as lascivious to use jake's word <laughs> as redheaded woman so i, I do kind of feel like and it was also being the first thing i saw that day my memory of the of that screening has already kind of uh uh dulled a little bit but um you've got carrie grant and irene dunn uh and you've got uh th- you know the the third star of the movie which is uh, the dog of course so it was the same the same dog who played asta uh in the thin man I think it was named Aston in real life. See, that's that was actually, and I can't remember who introduced it, but that was something that was talked about. Oh, okay. Um, that the dog is um, sometimes credited as Asta, but apparently was mostly known as Skippy. But then, <laughs> like after it became Asta, yeah. the Thin Man, it's no gone back. It was just it was just Asta. But if you look up the dog's Wikipedia page, <laughs> which I did. Uh, um, um, because I, uh, when I'm, you know, when I'm writing for the website, yeah. I do research. Yeah, hard hitting <laughs> journalist research. You're nothing. I if go not to Wikipedia. Thorough. Yeah, <laughs> and the Wikipedia page does have him listed as Skippy. Like it says, like <laughs> Skippy redirected from Aston, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, the the awful truth was uh, was a delight. Um, Jake, you're up next. Um, well, conveniently enough, I also saw a film with Irene Dunn uh, on Saturday. It's called. I love this title, Theodora Goes Wild. It's a great title. Um, and I don't know if any of your listeners are familiar with the career of, I- of Irene Dunn, but this was sort of her transition from sort of more melodramas uh, like Love Affair, which she did with uh, Charles Boyer, into sort of more madcap screwball uh screwball comedies. And what I really love about this film is we all know sort of the screwball uh, narrative structure, right, where it's one person's the straight man, one person is the screwball element. 
what this does is it takes that dynamic and plays it that way for the first half and then at the midpoint flips it hmm. where the straight man becomes the screwy person and the screwy person becomes hmm. the straight man. And it's just, uh, it's really thrilling to see even in, I think this is 1936, um, they're, st- they're sort of tweaking those formulas and uh, re-energizing them. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I will say I was a little disappointed that I opted to see this instead of street scene. Um, okay. oh, you should be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> not, not that Theodora Goes Wild is bad by any means, but um, um, yeah, that was my one yeah. regret of well, the don't festival. Let, don't let the cat out of the bag. We're getting this street <laughs> scene. I do want to mention, um, uh, uh, just in my repeated attempts to sort of tie the festival together, this does seem to be something that you mentioned Irene Dunn being in the two movies. Mm-hmm. This does seem to be something they, they do a lot. Uh, I, I, I noticed it last year too, but I can't remember. But certain like, you know, there'll be a, a director represented more than once, yeah. or an actor. Uh, I think the biggest thing this year was with uh, in the heat of the night, the landlord and a movie we'll be discussing later. Uh, Lee Grant was in three of the movies uh, that were that played at the at the festival, and of course was also present at at the mm-hmm. festival. I think that kind of dictated yeah. <laughs> the number of films of hers they showed. Uh, do you think it was that and not the other? Like, do you think? I wonder what happened. I wonder if they decided, okay, it's the 50th anniversary in the heat of the night. And then they said, okay, we can get Lee Grant. And then maybe yeah. they said, okay, let's program the landlord yeah, and so. the third film to be named later. Um, uh, anyway, I, I don't know. Did either of you see the landlord? Uh, no, I, well, I didn't see the landlord, but I was at the uh, Q and a with Lee Grant. Uh, at Club TCM. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. So um, I didn't do any of that stuff this year. I did last year. Yeah, this I I didn't I didn't do Club TCM last year either. And I actually made an effort. I'm like, let's let's go see what what this is all about. And I will say, it was a, a really great Q and A, um, moderated by Leonard Malton. So nice. you know he he knows what he's doing. Um, and yeah, I think going back to what you're saying about how she fit into the theme. Um, I think Grant, as an actress, has a real facility both with drama and just sort of a natural comedic sense that you uh, that you can feel in her in her presence. Uh, yeah, and I also just think everyone should see the landlord, especially in our post woke you know gentrification <laughs> uh, days. The landlord's a, a really powerful and incredibly hilarious and often uncomfortable movie, and I saw it. Uh, on film, thank you. Uh, <laughs> About back time. in 2011, uh, the the Arrow in Santa Monica did a double feature, both 35 millimeter of um, the Landlord and the Fabulous Baker Boys with Bo Bridges Q and A in between, oh, nice. uh, and it was a fucking great night. R.I.P. Um, Michael Ballhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, it just uh, was that yesterday. Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's very sad. Um, okay, what's what's up next for you? Uh, well, first thing, bright and early, I got up and saw Danny Kaye and the Court Jester, uh, which I'd never seen before. I, the only other Danny Kaye, well, I'd seen White Christmas he's in, uh, but I, the only other like Danny Kaye, Danny Kaye movie I'd seen was, uh, I can't even think of the title now, uh, Walter Mitty, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which I didn't really care for, but I love the Court Jester. Um, it is a relentless very densely plotted, surprisingly <laughs> densely plotted for a very silly comedy movie. Uh, basically, there's a very loud motorcycle just now. Uh, basically, Danny Kay plays a Robin this Hood. This is why we usually do this at Tyler's place. It's very sealed in there. Yeah. Uh, Danny Kay plays a kind of, he's a member of kind of a Robin Hood type gang, and they're trying to overthrow the king as you do. Uh, and he gets in by posing as the king's new court jester. Little does he know that the court jester was also hired to assassinate the king. <laughs> 
and the plots only added from there. I mean, it was a lot to keep track of, but it was a thrill to try to keep track of it all. And it's one, it's just one of those, uh, you know, uh, one of those comedies where not only is he densely plotted, there will, there will occasionally be scenes where it's like, okay, this is just a sketch. Like, yeah, for we're sure. just going to like, you know, this isn't necessarily part of the plot, but we're just, for the length of this scene, we're going to explore this premise, be it a magnetized suit of armor or a... But that's like uh, added on to, that's like the mo- perfect marriage because they're doing the poison plot alongside yeah. this great wordplay about the poison and then they add the magnetized suit of armor. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a few years yeah. for me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've always liked this movie. Although when I, when I revisited it a few years ago, also in uh, early ish morning screening at AFI <laughs> fest, uh, weirdly, all places. um, uh, I did, I did a morning screening double feature at AFI <laughs> fest. This would have been 2014, maybe 2013, 2014 of the court jester and the marriage of Maria Braun. <laughs> weird, weird back to back morning, like AM, uh, double feature. But, uh, I did find that dense plotting, a, uh, a little more off putting than I had had when I was, when I was younger. Uh, but Angela Lansbury, right? Yeah. Such a babe. Yes. Yes. Uh, I will say that it was a new digital restoration and I will say it looked very nice, David. And I, oh, good. I can sometimes see the appeal <laughs> of the DCP. <laughs> um, uh, next up for me, uh, I saw now there's, there's a thing I tried to do on Saturday. Um, and it turned out well, um, was to see movies that weren't necessarily new to me, but I had only seen either as a kid or, or oh yeah, both as a kid and probably off of TV, like not you know so so edited for content and having different. And so the first one I saw was Carl Reiner's The Jerk, uh, which was one of the big. I feel like it was one of the big movies of the festival in yeah, terms of how they were sure. promoting it. It was like part of the artwork. Some of the passes had mm-hmm. uh, Steve Martin's uh, form uh, on them, um, and uh, this had a lengthy Q and A with Carl Reiner, like longer. It went longer than it was yeah. supposed to. They uh, often which, do with guys like that. Yeah. I, I'm not complaining. He's, uh, he's amazing. Like, uh, they're two very different people, but Carl Reiner and Harry Dean Stanton are like, <laughs> maybe I, you know, if I can live to be in my nineties, cause Carl Reiner's 95. Yeah. And other than like kind of walking a little stooped over, you know, and a little slower is doesn't seem 95 at all. He's very sharp. He's very funny. He told a lot of, uh, uh a lot of funny stories, um, about, uh, so when they were making the jerk, it was during the gas uh, crisis. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I guess it would have. Been. So um, he and Steve Martin would carpool to work every day, <laughs> and he talked about how many jokes are in, that are in the movie were just things they came up with while riffing yeah. on the way to, like the whole the whole thing about the uh, before before Naven leaves his father's house and his father tell, teaches him the difference between <laughs> shit and Shinola. Like that was just something that Steve Martin said in the car, and Carl Reiner thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. And apparently they had like the reason that takes place on the side of the house is they had like they were done with that set and had already teared oh, yeah. down the house like torn down the house and they just had like the one wall right. and they were like let's shoot this 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 right here um there were all kinds of uh all kinds of great stories i wish i could remember more um uh one of his uh, he, he also car runner is very uh political uh, on twitter i don't know if you follow him on twitter yeah. but mm-hmm. uh, he said he doesn't go to bed without uh doing at least one anti-trump tweet <laughs> and then he made a joke about uh if the jewel if the jews are con- controlling the world they're clearly not controlling it well enough <laughs> uh and uh uh god there was something else that i that i that i that he said that i thought was really funny 
um, that I, I hope I can come come back to and tell you. But he all, uh, uh, oh, I know he was he was talking about how poorly the movie played in its first preview screening. Oh, and he man. was like he was like they did a preview screening somewhere where they don't speak English. I think it was in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and then later he was talking about his son Rob Reiner, who has a, a cameo in the Jerk, and he talked about how proud he is of his son and how he's made twenty something features and only two of them are duds. Uh, it was a it was a delightful Q and A, and then the movie itself I think. Um, it didn't. I, it, it, it was. It was a fun time seeing it. Um, there's some. I still think it's an incredibly hilarious movie. Um, it didn't play as raucous as I expected it to. Oh, really? That's uh, like I think some of the stuff is maybe a little too conceptual to get a big laugh. Like everyone likes it, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't know if it gets a, a big a big laugh. Um, and there's also some of the. I think the race stuff. I think people. Yeah, I'll bet. like. <laughs> This the scene, and I was telling you about this, Scott. Um, even though I um, watched it taped off of television in the early '90s on, like you know, week or Saturday afternoon TV, apparently you could say the N word because yeah. the part when he says, you know, you sir are talking to a. Uh, like I remember that that was not that was not yeah. uh, bleep nor was my uh, taped off a of TV copy of Blazing Saddles which had, which has that word all over it. Um, uh, that's surprising to think back on these days. But you know, no one laughed real hard at the you you sir are talking to a blank. Even though I think that scene conceptually because it turns into suddenly a Bruce Lee kung fu movie <laughs> is, is very funny. Like it didn't get a a, a big a big laugh. Um, but uh, a, a lot of stuff did. Um, uh, Bernadette Peters is, uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to get purian, but she's, she's just, she's just so cute in that movie. Um, and, uh, I think the hardest I laughed, laughed was at, at one of the stupidest jokes, which is when the priest comes to him to tell him about the cat juggling in his country. And, uh, Steve Martin addresses him. He says, father, you seem like a really damn it. He says, "Father, you seem like a religious man." <laughs> <laughs> I, I I couldn't stop laughing at that for some reason. No, that movie is wall to wall like even the oh. smallest comment is a joke. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay, so that was that was the jerk, uh, Jake. <laughs> um, well, I think we can uh, before we jump to the film that you and I saw together. Okay, right? I mean, I got a lot of other stuff in Saturday. Okay, well. Um, before that, yeah. that morning I did see uh, Red River, again, Howard oh, Hawks, okay. um, and similar to what you've kind of been talking about, it's a film that I probably haven't seen since I was, you know, in high school, probably saw it on TCM, and um, what I hadn't appreciated was just the epic qualities that Hawks really brings to it, particularly because you don't always uh, necessarily associate Hawks with you know, scenic vistas and everything, even his other westerns like Rio Bravo are more intimate, more Did you see the big sky when UCLA played that last No, year? I didn't. Oh, is that, man. Is should, that one of his It's very epic and yeah. very cool. Um but um in any case, Red River, it's as great as you hear. Um Montgomery Clift and John Wayne surprisingly really complement each other but so well. I've been meaning to I I haven't seen the movie since I read a biography of Montgomery Clift and learned that John Wayne couldn't stand him. Yeah. Because Montgomery Clift was kind of effeminate, and yeah. Yeah. didn't like that in a man. Yes, uh, and so I, I, I want to watch it and like look for that. Um, yeah, you can you can definitely sense that uh, animosity, but I I think that ultimately works for the film. Yeah, I mean that's half the movie um, about. Uh, yeah, and particularly because um, Wayne is such a fascinatingly contradictory 
figure, right? Because he he is this um, hyper-masculine sort of icon. But if you think about John Wayne, the way he walks, the way his like his vocal rhythms are kind of broken up, he there there's a lot that's not normal about John Wayne mm-hmm. and well, he's kind of a big softy. Yeah. And I think what you find, at least what, what I find, and I'm, I'm no scholar of acting, but, um, Wayne is sort of backing into the same performative territory as Montgomery Clift is. They're just getting there via different, different routes. You know what I mean? Where, um, Part of part of method acting, as I understand it, is uh, all about being in the moment, all about right. a, a certain physicality, and that's that's Wayne through and through. Even yeah, though sure. he's even though he's coming from you know a history as a stuntman and working his way through the business, he didn't do any stage work or anything like that. So just seeing just seeing those two sort of bounce off each other and still um, end up. Uh, creating a coherent relationship and something that I think is really moving and uh, one of one of Hawks's best sort of uh, core dynamics. Yeah, between, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, yeah, because Clift's background, the method acting, it was about like building a character and really thinking through like their history and like who they were and where they came from, whereas Wayne spent his whole career trying to be himself, basically. Yeah. And it did take a while for him to develop that. You watch some like early 40s, kind of programmer stuff and he's not entirely there yet yeah but um but at the same time he's definitely playing a star persona but so is clift in that movie i think Mm -hmm. he's playing i mean he doesn't exist as a star yet this was one of two of the first movies of his career um but nevertheless he comes on the screen like fully formed and like this is a distinct persona certainly yeah Scott, what's, what do we need to talk about next? Uh, I'll briefly touch on David and Lisa, which was uh, Frank Perry's, I think, debut film, certainly his breakout film. Uh, he and his wife, Eleanor, uh, she would be the screenwriter, he'd be the director for a series of fantastic films in the 60s, including uh, The Swimmer, Last Summer, uh, a couple years later, Diary of Manhattan, Mad Housewife. Uh, but David and Lisa was really the one that put them on the map. It stars uh, Keir Doulet, who was at the screening for a Q&A and who looks exactly like it does at the end of 2001 now, <laughs> which is quite terrifying. Um, but he stars in the movie as uh, kind of mentally troubled, mentally, he has a teenager with a mental disorder. Uh, he just is, cannot stand to be touched. He's afraid that anyone who touches him is trying to kill him. Um, and he's very antisocial and just has trouble kind of getting along in society. So he's put in this kind of school for kids in similar situations where he meets Lisa, who uh, is suffering from some sort of schizophrenia. She has multiple personalities, um, but he kind of sees in her kind of a challenge uh, because the other doctors can't quite get through to her, and he figures out a way to do so. But he's not getting through to her like as a means of making her better. It's just kind of like initially a challenge for him, and he wants to prove that he's smarter than all these doctors that are treating him. and so it's really interesting. I think it gets kind of a little bland and predictable towards the end in terms of how they come together and, you know, bring out the best in each other and all that kind of stuff. And doesn't really handle the transition between this very caustic guy at the start with kind of some of the softy at the end. Um, but it's still really well acted and really kind of thrilling. Uh, there's these really terrifying dream sequences where he dreams about chopping off people's heads, which are very uh, elaborately directed. Um, and also uh, Howard De Silva stars as their kind of doctor. And this was his first movie back after years of being blacklisted. And you really realize how much Howard De Silva we missed in those 12 years or so. 
Well, I think uh, the time has come, Scott, for you and I to rub it in Jake's face that he didn't <laughs> see Street Scene, which is uh, what I hinted at earlier was my, my favorite film that Mine I saw as well. uh, at, at the festival. Uh, and this was a, as I mentioned before, this was the 35 millimeter print that was not in, you know, the best shape. It was, but why would you want to see Street Scene in great shape? <laughs> it was also a, listed as a DCP yeah. in the program. I was exceeding, was it? yeah, I was. And I was which exceedingly I, pleased to be that that was wrong. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I was surprised because I would not think that that would be a film that... Do you know, I just... I think because it was in Theater 4, which uh, is, I think... Right. That's yes. where David, David and Lisa was 35, yeah. and that was in Theater yeah. 4, right? And, like, last year, I think you and I saw Law and Order there. I think yeah. I just, like, programmed to think, like, oh, Theater 4 means yeah. 35 millimeters, do, but just assumed. Do we want to kind of talk about the, uh, the buzz around Theater 4 that I feel like is part of, like, TCM Fest lore? Like, that I mean, it's, it's kind of been abandoned because they shove so many pre-code stuff in the Egyptian this year, which is I, yeah, great because yeah. they could finally accommodate all the people who wanted to see it. But yeah, I think Theater 4 lost some of its luster this year. Yeah, I mean, Street Scene wasn't full. It was close to full, yeah. but it wasn't full. Um, but it is kind of a, an infamous venue of the weird and the unusual. And yeah. also it's, I think, uh, it's the smallest of the yes. rooms and so is there, therefore the most difficult to get into. And, That's its, re- its reputation. And it's the Hall than, H of, <laughs> of TCM Fest. Yeah, and, but isn't Hall H like huge? Yeah. 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 Um, and it's also the only, other than the Egyptian, the only other uh, house that can show 35 millimeter. Yeah, so yeah. these days, yeah. yeah. It used to be that six could do both, but they don't anymore. Um, but yeah, Street Scene is a King Vidor film, um, 1931, uh, based on a stage play. Um, and in some ways that's obvious that it's based on a stage play and that it's a, a single location, but, um, that doesn't mean the movie's not, uh, uh, cinematic. It's quite, it's quite cinematic. Uh, it, it basically takes place, I guess the first act is, uh, the evening outside of a Brooklyn yeah. apartment on the stoop and the second act takes place the next morning, uh, same location. And it's, um, I mean, I guess Sylvia Sidney is the lead ish, even yeah. though she's a very ensemble movie. It's an ensemble movie and she does actually show up until like a third of the way into the movie. Yeah. Uh, but she's talked about from the beginning. Um, but yeah, it's basically an ensemble of a bunch of different, uh, families, uh, and people of different, uh, religions, different, uh, politics, um, and, uh, different ethnicities. Yeah. And uh, different aspirations too, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but all relatively of the same, you know, economic class. They do live in the same apartment they live in building, the same building after all. It has a way <laughs> yeah. of flattening things out. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not a high rise. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, uh, I, I think to go back to what I was saying before about redheaded woman and the um, the, the the sort of see now I sound like compared to you guys I'm like talking shit about redheaded woman I like the movie <laughs> but it, there is that kind of stilted feel um, King Vidor um, adds all these touches that aren't they aren't showy but these touches that give you a sense of the entire you know you, you don't feel like you're watching something on a stage even though you yeah, are sure but you feel you feel the presence of the street around them because of these these cutaways or these overhead shots or you know uh near the end the uh uh awesome crowd shots yeah um and there's also some some touches uh that you know i i feel like you're taught like I, you know, you go to film school and you're taught that uh, when Orson Welles and Greg Tolan placed the camera super low on the ground and pointed it up in right. 1941 for Citizen Kane, that was something people hadn't seen before. But here you've got 
shots that are with the cameras essentially on the sidewalk looking at someone who's looking who's standing on the sidewalk yeah. and talking to someone up on one of the higher level windows you and maybe picking their underwear out of the butt in the meantime <laughs> yes yeah yeah and and i think you've got you've got at least one reverse shot too right that looks down on the sidewalk yeah that's right um uh, all, all these touches give it um it, uh, provide this this glue and keep it from feeling like a, a play um which is not necessarily a bad thing but um and also, also you've got a great ensemble cast there's no one uh, everyone knocks out of the park, I think, in the movie. Right? Yeah, I mean, loosely, I don't want to give too much away, but the film's kind of about a mounting tensions between some pe- different people involved in this yeah. scenario. Um, and they managed to navigate that through the cast really well. I mean, some people are always kind of pent up. Some people can be kind of given a rise if provoked. Uh, and some people just like kind of pushing other people's buttons. And the way they kind of navigate those avenues is very kind of classically theatrical where they'll, there'll be like some mounting tension and then like some jolly guy will come through <laughs> offering them ice cream, you know, <laughs> to kind yeah. of break it. Uh, yeah. And then the tension starts mounting again and it's all kind of managed through the performances. I mean, the camera work is very good, but I think it mostly is due to the cast. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's, I mean, I really like Sylvia Sidney, but this is definitely my favorite role of hers. She's very, She's kind of the soul of the film, and she mm-hmm. navigates that exceedingly well. It's very moving yeah. work from her. Um, and we said everyone's great, and obviously she's great, but also, and I'm forgetting who the actress is who plays her mother, is also terrific. Oh, yeah, I can't remember her name either, but she's like the most kind of overtly tragic character. Yeah. Um, and I, but I'm glad that she isn't like as much the focus as Sylvia Sidney is, because that level of tragedy, there's so much history of that character that it's more fun to kind of imagine the rest that we don't see if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this one was uh, introduced by Leonard Moulton, who, uh, just as he did when you and I saw Law & Order last year... Hey, just as he's been doing since I first, <laughs> yeah. the very first year I went to the festival. <laughs> um, saying the praises of short films. Yeah. Uh, not not short subjects like the Oscars, but just right. films with brief running times, uh, because I think uh, Street Scene clocks in at around 83, 84 minutes. Yeah, um, and it feels very full. I mean, it's a yeah. very rich movie. Yeah. Um... Estelle Taylor. Estelle Taylor is the woman who plays there you uh, go. Uh, Sylvia Sidney's mother. All right. Um, what's next for you now that you've been properly uh, uh, um, chastised? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, do you have any more? or Just the it? one we saw. All right. Yeah. So the last film I saw on Saturday was Black Narcissus, which uh, shamefully, this was actually a first time watch for me. I had never seen. I don't think there's any. Uh, this is going back to something that Scott and I were talking about before you showed up, before we started recording. But uh, I got a lot of blind spots, and mm-hmm. I've like I've been working through my own sort of shame on mm-hmm. some of those blind spots. But I've I've tried to like remember my years in therapy and not beat <laughs> myself up over it. Well, very very good. But in any case, <laughs> I, my shame is still there. Um, but no, we saw Black Narcissus, which um, I'll say. I mean, I. The difficult thing with filling in blind spots is once you see a movie that everyone tells you is great and then you see it and it's great, uh-huh. you're just kind of like, yeah, <laughs> like, well, okay, where, like, what can I add? And that's, that's kind of where I'm at with Black Narcissus. I will say that from what I knew of it, I was surprised at how much I felt there was still room for my relationship with the movie to grow with each successive viewing you know what i mean and i think that's what a lot of great movies do is you kind of 
you hear what Black Narcissus is about. You know, it's this nun, these this group of nuns who, you know, a man enters and suddenly there are these feelings that are percolating. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't want to get purient now, but um, <laughs> but I, I think that's certainly there. But the way Powell and Pressburger like organize the film allows there to be so much shading to that scenario that uh I think that I was I was really just blown away. And sorry David, the nitrate print <laughs> was, was utterly gorgeous. Gorgeous. <laughs> as as Scott can attest, so I'll, I'll um, throw it over to Scott. Yeah, I mean the And thing, this was in the Egyptian? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh the thing about Pal and Pressburger, I think, especially in the forties, is they at once made films that were like utterly perfect and yet kind of strange in their own mm-hmm. way. There's like these odd corners to them that would seem to make it imperfect, but they, it feel, all feels very natural uh, when it's all brought together. I mean, certainly by the time things start to go really off the rails and the naturalistic color is abandoned for like purely theatrical, very booming reds and blues and very heightened kind of melodramatic performances that there was some laughter I could have done without TCM audience. Um, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't tell if you were agreeing with me or sighing at me. I mean, no, you're you're correct. Okay. But I, that's that comes with the territory I know, of I all know. repertory viewings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Relatively, they're they're pretty well behaved. Um, but I, I mean, I've only seen the film once before, and I kind of forgot how long it takes to get around to some of the crazier stuff. Uh, while at the same time, kind of keeping a sense of tension, I thought especially the opening scenes where uh, Deborah Kerr's I would say Kurt Deborah Carr's character is getting kind of her assignment. It kind of reminded me of the opening of The Shining where <laughs> they're kind of like oh, leading man. her through everything she's going to do and there's just something a little wrong about it all and you can kind of sense that things are going to go poorly. Well, Am I crazy? No, all right. no. I'm, uh, You've seen it a billion times, David. Yeah, I've, uh, uh, to transition into the, fun, the final thing I saw on Saturday. Now, listen, I'm sure listeners who are like listening for a long time, they're like, David, loves Black Narcissus. It's literally like a top five all-time favorite for him. Why would he pass up the chance to see it? And on Nitrate, no less. Uh, but a couple reasons. One, like with The Jerk, I wanted to see something that I hadn't seen in this case since it probably aired on Comedy Central when I was like 12. Uh, and two, I was just in, like, I had just seen street, street Scene and I wanted to get back into the comedy mood of things. And so I ended my Saturday with um, Top Secret! Exclamation <laughs> point. And it was, let me tell you, Street Scene was my favorite movie of the festival. My favorite movie-watching experience Mm -hmm. of the festival was Top Secret because it it, it absolutely had the audience reaction that I was surprised the jerk didn't get, even though Top Secret was probably the least attended movie that I saw all weekend. I would say that, I mean, it was in Theater One, which is mid-sized, and was probably just a little over half full. Hmm. Um, uh, I was was a little surprised, but then again, Black Narcissist and The Graduate were were showing at the same time. Um, And... uh, Top Secret, I think, I, you know, when I, when I was young, I knew that it was goofy, and I, I, n- I never liked it as much as Airplane. And now, Airplane's clearly a funnier movie, I think, but I think Top Secret might be a better movie. Oh, I absolutely than Airplane. agree. It's amazing because it's so Im- ambitious, and it, it succeeds at so much of what it sets out to, uh, sets out to succeed. In, in that, you know, like most, most parody spoof-type movies tend to be content to stick to a genre, you know, with a couple of the references thrown in. Right. The, the framework will be like, we're making fun of this kind of movie. The thing that's so weird about Top Secret is that it's like a World War II movie and a spy movie <laughs> and a 1960s teen musical. Yeah. 
but it it also takes place like ostensibly in the then president present day of 1984. Right. <laughs> so it's all weird, uh, and it and it uh, succeeds at so much of it. But it has a cup a number of sequences. Well, it has jokes that uh, you know my favorite type of uh, spoof type jokes. I think uh, you know a lot of the jokes in these types of movies are about the character or plot tropes, right? Right. These kind of movies. But I love the ones that make fun of the the, the more cinematic tropes. Just sort of like uh, I've often pointed to the 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 ADR exposition joke in They Came Together. Right. I don't know which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite jokes uh, in any movie ever. And this one has the repeated like suggesting a sex scene by panning to a fireplace <laughs> and there's the part where they roll in front of a fireplace and then the camera pans to another yeah. fireplace and then they start making out while they're parachuting yeah and the camera pans over to a fireplace that's hanging from a parachute <laughs> those are so funny but then there's there's a couple of conceptual scenes that i'm like i can't believe there's the the climactic fist fight which takes place in an underwater Old West <laughs> saloon. It's an Old West bar fight that takes place entirely underwater. Um, and and uh, the scene in the library that goes in reverse. That, and that's the, that's the, the, real, uh, the, the real centerpiece for me, yeah. is that it's a single take. The entire <laughs> joke of the premise is that the Swedish language sounds yeah. like people speaking backwards, and so they take that joke and do an entire scene in one take backwards, um, <laughs> Where like the the action is you know t- is looking for is you know, right, it, but it was shot in reverse. T- it was shot in reverse so that they talk backwards. Featuring Peter Peter Cushing, <laughs> um, uh, and is so is so brilliant. I, and apparently on the on the DVD you can watch that scene forward. I, I looked that up. I've never. What well, would be the point? Um, <laughs> is he? I can't remember. Is he the character with the giant eye? Yeah. He's looking through the magnifying glass. Yeah. So that's yeah. how that scene starts. Yeah. Oh, and or ends weirder. when they record when they filmed it. Well, obviously. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then it also has the part with the big phone where there's the phone <laughs> in the foreground and the guy walks up to it and the phone's just enormous. Yeah. Yeah. So many. So but that's many why I like it. Jokes. It's a more personal film than Airplane is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like when he's trying to escape from his uh, cell and he manages to find multiple enormous <laughs> air vents and, and a crowbar in yeah. his prison cell. Uh, yeah. And that one also, a um, couple things about that. It was uh, introduced with a Q&A with Zucker Abrahams and Zucker. Uh, and they were very funny. They had a. They had a. This is clearly something that they get asked a lot and have a an answer rehearsed. So the um, uh, Dave Carger, I think, was uh, doing the. Um, is that right, Dave? Dave Carger? Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Formerly of Entertainment Weekly. Uh, yes, was doing the the Q and A, and he asked them, "Is it difficult for three directors to direct together with one voice?" And of course, they all start answering at the same time. <laughs> this is yeah, like clearly they have a few bits like that uh, in the Q and A's worked out. Yeah. Um, but uh, they also told the story I thought was very funny about um, promote. I told you this story, Scott, promoting the movie in France after it had come out and not done well in the States. <laughs> and so they were not in a good mood. They were tired from already having done the American promotional tour. They're in France. They know the movie's uh, a flop, um, you know, box office wise. Obviously, it's gone on to be a classic. But um, so they're in a bad mood and they're doing a photo shoot with a cow. If you've seen the movie, you know, uh, a cow uh, plays a major part in the in the third act, I guess. Um, And so they're just posing with a cow and the and the photographer is dragging this thing on and and wants a million different poses. And at one point he says, "Okay, now kiss the cow. And Jerry, Jerry Zucker just goes, you kiss the fucking cow. (laughs) And that was the end of the photo shoot. Uh, the other thing that I didn't know, because I don't think this was really advertised unless I, I missed it, like I missed the uh, um, 
uh, street scene saying it was DCP. This was actually technically a director's cut hmm. of oh. of Top Secret. Uh, and in 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 true ZAZ uh, unpredictable fashion, it's shorter than. Oh yeah. <laughs> Basically, apparently, what happened? If it, I don't know if it was this year or last year, they did a screening of the movie at the San Francisco San Francisco Sketch Fest, mm-hmm. and the three directors were there. They watched the movie, and then they were they were like, some of this stuff could be tightened up. <laughs> so apparently, this was like a premiere of the director's cut, but it was not advertised. Man, I'm glad I didn't such. know that. That would have made it really hard to keep attending Black Narcissus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I couldn't tell you what was. Oh yeah, for sure. But, I wouldn't uh, know for sure either. Uh, yeah, that was a delightful way to end Saturday. Uh, are you guys both done with Saturday as well? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like we didn't touch on that much of Black Narcissus, but yeah, it's a great movie. Like Jake said, yeah. it's kind of tough to add on to yeah. decades of scholarly work. Yeah. Sorry, I, I you guys talked for Black Narcissus about three minutes for about three <laughs> minutes, and I went on for ten minutes about Top Secret. But again, I'm the more practiced blowhard. <laughs> I mean, most of the gags in Black Narcissus are purely visual, so we, <laughs> couldn't, we couldn't go through all of them. I will say applied uh, nitrate appreciation is that uh, the shadows really stood out to me. Yes. Um, because I think in digital prints, the shadows just tend to get squashed into just pure black, whereas mm-hmm. here they felt like kind of a really inky presence. Yeah, they had real depth and texture that I agree with Scott. You just don't always get with digital. You sure don't. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll kick off uh, Sunday. Um, even though I got there late, I... Tried to make it in time for um, uh, Lord L U R E D. I feel like I have to say it's a weird word. I know, right? Every time I had to pronounce it, it was like Lord, <laughs> yeah. Lord. Yeah, um, it sounded like I was speaking, speaking Swedish backwards. Right there, you go. <laughs> uh, I tried to make it. The train was delayed, and so I showed up seven minutes before the movie was going to start. And then Scott, you told me later, like if I had shown up, even if I had shown up half an hour earlier, I tough. probably still wouldn't have gotten in. Um, so of course I used that, uh, uh, opportunity to do my favorite thing to do when I'm at Hollywood <laughs> Highland, which is go to Sammy Hagar's Cabo Wabo Cantina. <laughs> Were they still blasting the music at 11 a.m. on Sunday? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. 11 Open till close, brother. <laughs> uh, 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 place. And I've talked about it before, both for AFI Fest and for TCM, because there's always a spot at the bar. Right. If I order... Because uh, nobody wants to be there. <laughs> if I order a drink, I get free chips and salsa, and yeah. they have their own free Wi-Fi. And yeah. so if you're going to post up and write somewhere, why not somewhere where you can have free chips and salsa <laughs> and a drink uh, and, and Wi-Fi? So I, I used that to write up uh, uh, Saturday and then um, headed back to the Chinese theater for my third... Oh. Sorry. No, like, that's all right. A cat just got mad at Scott. Um, that's what cats do. They're not mad. They're just like, I'm done being pet. No, now. I know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, my third time at the Chinese theater, I'd seen The Awful Truth and The Jerk in the Chinese. Uh, and then my third and final time was Preston Sergis' uh, The Palm Beach Story. Um, my third divorce movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> was this a first time viewing? Or? This was a first time okay. viewing for me. Yes. Um, and um, uh, I'm, I'm definitely not. Uh, I still have a soft spot in my heart for the miracle of Morgan's Creek as far as Preston Sturges movies uh, go um, but this one is uh, mostly notable I think for uh, I think I don't think it's a fantastic uh, story but it has it's a the, weird story that's for sure yeah. <laughs> but it has it has the the, the chaos of, of Preston Sturges the, the gracefully controlled chaos yeah. mm-hmm. you know, in which you've got a bunch of uh, drunken aristocrats storming up and down a passenger train firing shotguns <laughs> in the air with howling uh, bloodhounds um, uh, and, and stuff like that. But basically you've got a an amazing four-way uh, acting team here. We've got uh, um, 
I'll say Joel McRae first because he's like top build, even though he's the maybe the least of the four right. in terms of. You've got uh, the terrific Claudette Colbert who uh, has a. Um, I used the word woke before, but she has a, a, a monologue or a very funny, but also very, uh, uh, um, you know, socially aware monologue about the idea of a woman from the from the age of like fourteen has to get used get used to the way that men look at her and what that means, right? And um, uh, and and working that into her sort of social interactions um, that I thought was really interesting, but also very funny. And then you've got. Uh, maybe the 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 two real stars for me, uh, <laughs> even though they're the the supporting players. But in terms of the comedy, you got Mary Astor and Rudy Valley who uh, knock it out of the park um, and provide most of the biggest laughs for me. Mary Astor, in particular, which is funny because Carrie Beecham, who inter- introduced the movie. Um, said she had recently read in a book on Mary Astor that she never liked her performance in the Palm Beach story and never thought she was good at comedy. Hmm. Um, which, which is, which is odd because she's the, she's the highlight of the movie, uh, for me. Usually anyone in a Preston Sturgis movie is, is good at comedy. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By virtue of having a Preston Sturgis script. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought, I thought it was, was, was very good. That, um, yeah, uh, I also saw a Preston Sturges film on Sunday. I saw um, Unfaithfully Yours, the film that um, if the uh, if the noir czar Eddie Muller is to be believed, more or less uh, ended uh, the most successful part of Sturges's career. Apparently, was a rather uh, significant flop, but um, it's it's it was a little different. Uh, for me in terms of the Sturgises I've seen because the first, I'll say about the the first act, the first third is pretty placid and, you know, kind of doesn't really build up to that manic pace. And then you get a series of, I don't know, should I spoil it? I think so. Yeah, you get a series of what are essentially uh, fantasy sequences or like dream sequences that basically then allow the film to just descend into madcap slapstick fall down funny comedy um it stars rex harrison as a uh an orchestra conductor a famous orchestra conductor who has reason to believe that his uh wife his much younger wife is cheating on him and so of course he naturally uh he naturally begins to plot her murder. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it just kind of takes it from there. And uh, Harrison's amazing in it. He has a real facility with physical comedy that I was not expecting. And uh, this was a theater four movie that was surprisingly also under attended. I know it was, I saw it at the TBA screening. So uh, for those of you who don't know, but that means it just means it was super popular the first time. Yeah. uh, TCM fest always leaves a few slots open on the last day to sort of fill in with second screenings of uh, things that had that did well on the previous three days. Had yeah. quote-unquote so, sold out. I mean, it's yes. all pass-holder-driven, so there was no selling involved, but they had filled the capacity mm-hmm. and then some. Yeah. Um, but Scott, I, as I recall, you're a big fan of Unfaithfully Yours, is that? Uh, I'm actually not. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say I'm not. I, I don't like Preston Searches very much at all. Uh, I think every <laughs> cinephile has their, you know, uh, canonic directors and s- films that they just can't get with. And Preston Surges is that for me all over. I, I find his comedy very uh, learned as, f- as opposed to felt. 
Um, Unfaithful Yours is on the better end of Preston Sturges, I think, but largely because of Rex Harrison. And I mentioned this moment to you, but the moment where it comes out of the first uh, murder fantasy, which is the most like grotesque <laughs> of them all, and he's just cackling away in real life, just imagining his wife's murder is a delight. Um, yeah, also kind of... Whether or not it was an intentional running theme, but between uh, Unfaithfully Yours and Laura, I've noticed that male ego and sort of male fantasy being deflated was a kind of a running theme for the films I saw at the TCM Film Festival. And what's really what's funnier than that? Yeah, exactly. It is a frequent subject for comedy, so it makes sense that... Um, the, the TBA screening thing, the fact that Unfaithfully Yours was re- reprogrammed or whatever um, a second time um, meant that you had overlap where Preston Sturges, Palm Beach Story and Unfaithfully oh, yeah. Yours were screening at the mm-hmm. same time. I, uh, um, I know because I met a gentleman at the the Chinese theater's lobby bar uh, after <laughs> after Palm Beach Story who was just flabbergasted that they would would do that. Was, was the Chinese theater's lobby bar also pumping Sam Hager music? <laughs> no, they were, that was where you could sit and watch whatever was on TCM, yeah. uh, actually, uh, on, on the screen. Um, but, uh, yeah, okay, so I felt like I had something else to say, but I forget what it was. Uh, I started my day with another comedy, classic comedy that I don't care for at all. Uh, I do not like Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, oh yeah, that's, even, that's crazy. To me. Even more so than Preston Surges, I, I just it just sits there for me. And speaking of performances that their actors hated, Cary Grant hated his work in the movie. And I mean, I love Cary Grant, but I can see where he's coming from. He thought that somebody <laughs> like Jimmy Stewart would be better suited to the role. And I can kind of see that the film needed a, a different kind of anchor to it. Um, but it's just it works so hard to be just mildly amusing. There's this is not <laughs> not a lot of strong jokes in there. I don't know. Uh, maybe. It's my predilection for dark comedy, but just the fact of a comedy about that's about poisoning people it like already endears it to me. And I feel like that's the part that people always celebrate, just the fact of it. And that's it's like, OK, next. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a Frank Capra film. Yeah. right? And if we're going to go for sort of uh, canonical hot takes, <laughs> um, I've never found Capra to be particularly. Uh, adaptic comedy. Like I, he, he I makes, still like it happened one night, but I like it less than I used to. He makes pleasant films. Yeah, he makes sure. films that are definitely comedies, but I rarely laugh at Capra films as much as I do um, Sturgis or yeah. Wilder or even uh, a director we'll talk about later, Mitchell Leeson. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You um, guys are killing me here. <laughs> but hey, then you don't like uh, you can't take it with you. I've never seen that one. Uh, Mr. Deeds uh, goes to town. Again, I think there the strength is character performance. And, I mean, Capra can certainly take credit for that. Um, but, I, yeah, his his comedic sense. I, th- now, here's a real hot take. <laughs> I think John Ford, I might get more laughs in John Ford films. Oh, absolutely. Than I do in Frank no Capra question. films. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> when is, uh, Tyler and I often talk about, like, um, the enormous laugh in The Searchers. In the middle of the fist fight, where he holds up the somebody's like, fiddle. Somebody's fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Tyler and I, when we were like college students, watched that together on VHS, and like probably had to pause the movie because we were yeah. laughing so hard. Yeah, at yeah. somebody's fiddle. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, sorry, where were we? Okay, uh, I'm up next. Actually, this will be the last one for me, uh, and this will take care of one of yours as well, Scott, because you and I saw uh, Detective yeah. Story uh, together. Another 
the two movies we saw uh, were both uh, stage plays. That's right. Um, and both roughly single location. This one, I think, you know, uh, uh, ginned up some, you know, car scenes right. just to like, just to break up the <laughs> break monotony up of the, of the, of the, whatever you call, what do you call, uh, what do you call the room where all the detectives hang out? The bullpen? That, that's a newspaper thing. Yeah, I believe yeah. it's the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it's detective uh, office, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I feel the like precinct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's but it takes place in one room in yeah. the 21st pre- Manhattan's 21st precinct. Uh, and, uh, again, like, again, like street scene, it's kind of an ensemble piece, but it definitely has, uh, a lead character. In, this in, one much more so. Uh, yeah. In, in this, this turn, this time in the person, person of, uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, as um, Detective McCloud, which is a very good detective, detective name. type name. Um, I think it's even John McCloud. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's no Commander Ace Hunter. For those I mean, we who, can't have it all. Yeah, uh, the, those who listen to the Space Invaders commentary uh, available now at BattleshipRetention dot <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, and you know, I, I talked more about street scene than uh, than you did. So why don't you talk more about Detective <laughs> um, Story? It's a, it's an interesting movie, um, especially because Detective Cloud's uh, number one case, the one he's really chasing, is after an abortionist, which for a, a 1950s movie yeah, is a very unusual subject. Um, and they like talk about it in such a way that there's just enough distance to get over the code, but it's very obvious what, right. uh, what kind of doctor he's chasing after. Um, and the film is essentially concerned with how uh, strict and uh, principle-driven john mcleod is and how that attitude which serves him very well in his job might bend around and serve him very poorly in his personal life as he gets to know some things about his wife that he isn't thrilled to hear um yeah it's almost like a like a textbook like greek tragedy yeah, type thing sure. in which he has a fatal flaw and the fatal flaw is the thing that makes him the hero to begin with right. and also uh, and ultimately leads to his destruction yeah and he just can't help himself of chasing this purity of life that he seeks um where ironically of course then he is the most impure of them all um but it's also a very funny movie i mean you and i were laughing out loud at a number of the criminals who come through this precinct um who are taking a very different kind of acting styles than kirk douglas is (laughs) yeah but somehow it all kind of meshes including lee grant as a, um, a, a shoplifter um and i wish i wrote down the name of the the guy who played like the super loud criminal because he was like outstanding oh, the 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 italian yeah the character's name was like charlie gianni yeah something like that. or something like that yeah I, I don't remember but then also his counterpart would they were like a weird like comedy duo yeah his counterpart was very like soft-spoken right uh and yeah they played uh terrifically uh together i will say that this showed on a very poor dcp <laughs> I, Did was, you, I, didn't, I didn't notice particularly. It was sharp and all, but it was also like different colors at times in the same shot. Okay. Uh, yeah, and that's you don't see that with a print. Uh, well, maybe you do. <laughs> uh, agree to disagree. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but I, I, I thought this movie was was great. It ended up being a weird way for me to end yeah, the comedy I, TCM fest. I'm glad I didn't end on it for sure. Um, but I, I, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, and uh, the the Q&A beforehand uh, was with Lee Grant, um, conducted by Eddie Muller, uh, and focused largely on her 12 years on the blacklist. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, some, some nice mentions of, of Kirk Douglas in terms of, um, in terms of the blacklist and, and Kirk Douglas fighting for Dalton Trumbo to get the credit on Spartacus and, like, breaking the blacklist and um, 
Uh, yeah, Lee Grant is. I looked it up. She's like eighty-seven or eighty-eight mm-hmm. years old. Is that all? Wow. Um, but see, you say is that all? But I feel like she's she didn't seem. But to have already been on the blacklist. Well, in the early fifties, like right? Yeah, she was. I mean, she was. I think she's twenty-two. Yeah, yeah. She was story, like the youngest. She was twenty-four when she was yeah. blacklisted. Yeah. Um. I don't know if they touched on this in the Q and A, but um, when it was just her the sort of hour with her and Leonard Malton. Um, it was explained that she was on the blacklist because she married a communist. Right, yeah. They yes. kind of touched so, on this a little bit. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but she, t- so they talked about, you know, her career, her, she's an Oscar winner. She mm-hmm. went on to become a film director and documentarian. Yeah. Uh, and she considers her 12 years on the blacklist to be the defining mm-hmm. uh ingredient of her life i guess i'd imagine it would make quite an impression yeah and i mean and she and she said that the kind of documentary she's made the idea of fighting for people who were getting a raw deal yeah. is inspired by what uh was done to her all right so i'm done you guys both have more to talk about. all right um yeah i had one more uh film on sunday morning which was the ernst lubitsch uh, delightful comedy one hour with you which um Going back to the print or DCP question, this was a print, (laughs) and uh, it was UCLA's print, which is unique, I'm told, by Scott, um, in that it actually, certain uh, sequences are tinted, which apparently isn't reproduced on uh, the DVD. Yeah. It's um, a sound film. You usually associate tinting with silent films, but it's an early sound film. Um, but yeah, one thing I didn't know about this film was that it was also a musical. I had never oh, really? seen Yeah, I, I had never seen Lubitsch musicals. I just heard Marie Chevalier, Lubitsch. Right. I knew I had missed it on, I think it played Thursday or Friday, and this was another one of the TBA screenings, so I made it my job to be there and get a good seat. Um, and it was absolutely delightful, as uh, so many Lubitsch films are just to- uh, totally effortless, much like Red-Headed Woman, a little lascivious, a little saucy. Um <laughs> But yeah. Well, what's great about it is it starts out about this married couple who just loves being married and loves getting to have sex all the time. Yes. <laughs> like that, that's the starting point of the movie. Well, and then, yes, then it, it kind of evolves into this uh, pretty, I think, pretty sophisticated look at sort of uh, trust and infidelity oh, sure. to the point where uh, if I can reduce it a little bit, I was calling it Ernst Lubitsch's Eyes Wide Shut. So um, it's it's, it's got just, a lot of that in, in there. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds terrific. Yeah, I mean that song that I I know we talked about uh, the Mitzi song. Oh, it's that just, Mitzi! <laughs> it's just Maurice Chevalier addressing the camera directly, singing about the fact that he loves his wife and all, but is so distracted by this one woman who he can't get out of his head. Um, and who he, happens to be his wife's right. like oldest friend? <laughs> yeah, of course, um, because everything in Lubitsch is interconnected and related. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. It's just him addressing the camera. He totally holds it, and it really gets to like a central core of uh, kind of lust and jealousy, which you know is that you're. I guess you're just happy enough at a certain point until this other element comes along. Yeah, and uh, returning back to one of David's points, which is kind of these uh, pre-code and early sound films. How do they balance sort of the more blatantly theatrical with the cinematic? Mm-hmm. And I think. Uh, in these, in Lubitsch's films around this time, you can kind of see both uh, both sides really mixing rather well. Yeah, and I sure. think the the direct address kind of is at once gesturing toward that more burlesque theatrical tradition, yet still somehow because of the way Chevalier is playing it, plays as a cinematic device rather than just something that's nakedly stage bound. 
Uh, is that all? <laughs> I didn't want to just. I feel like he just made a great point, and you're like, "Is that all?" No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I I should have phrased it more eloquently. Yeah, Do you yeah, have yeah. anything else to say about one hour with you? Uh, no. Let's let's move on to the final. Oh wait, no. I sorry. Oh, I have one more. I have one more to cover. With that. <laughs> um, I wanted. I didn't want to talk about Lord, uh, which David couldn't get into, uh, but which is this fantastic Douglas Sirk uh, film noir, uh, starring Lucille Ball of all people as a hard bitten dame whose uh, best friend kind of goes missing and who ends up becoming a detective with Scotland Yard in order to find her. Uh, and the principal subject, in, or not the principal suspect, but uh, who the audience is led to suspect is George Sanders, who is always a welcome presence in any film. Um, and it's a very kind of unusual noir film. It's thrilling, but it's also deeply funny, as you might expect with those two at the lead. Um, it gets a little maybe tired towards the end where every scene starts to feel like it's last, but that first two thirds or so is really strong and really gets into this kind of weird subculture of people meeting complete strangers. Cause the reason that people go missing is they're answering, uh, personal ads that they really shouldn't be. Um, but, and so in order to find the killer, uh, Lucille Ball has to just answer a ton of personal ads. So she ends up going on a lot of terrible dates, which is a great way to spend, you know, a fraction of a film noir. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it was, a, it was a strong restoration too, strong DCP. I highly recommend giving that a rental. Wish I'd gotten in. Uh, all right. Well, will you guys have one more to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mitchell Leeson's lady in the dark Leeson, right? Yeah. Do, do we ever, I think we discovered it was Leeson. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Mitchell Leeson's lady in the dark, the final film of the nitrate yeah. series and, uh, certainly the strangest. I don't know. Do you want to strangest movie I've seen in, I don't even know how long. Yeah. So just a brief rundown of the plot. It stars Ginger Rogers, who is, uh, this, uh, she's the editor in chief of a fashion magazine, right? Mm-hmm. Allure. Yeah, it's um, kind of like Vogue. Kinda yeah, thing. and uh, it starts with her in a doctor's office. Like she has some sort of uh, unexplained malady that even she can't uh, define yeah. or identify really. And um, basically, what ends up happening is she ends up going into psychoanalysis. She's she dresses rather masculinely. In the she wears a bow tie. Home. She she wears a bow tie. Her hair is very tight and I don't high. even know how to describe her hair. Her, her hair is an architectural. Feature. Yes, <laughs> like it is. Uh, um, and basically, the film it's it's based on a what was a highly successful uh, stage play at the time with music by Kurt Vile, who wrote yeah. Three Penny Opera. Yeah, and uh, lyrics by one of the Gershwins. Ira, uh, I think so. Yeah, I, yeah. Ira Gershwin. Um, so. It's it's tying in all these disparate things, right? Ideas of of gender, and then also, uh, particularly because it, it was the mid forties, Freudian psychoanalysis, big time. Yeah, and um, f- from what I'm led to believe, the stage treatment was much more. Um, I don't want to say sensitive because I'm sure it still doesn't hold up to right. today's woke standards. Right, I don't for know. sure. David is our. <laughs> Our, our woke experts. Yeah. <laughs> our our wokey in residence, I guess. Um, but um, on film, it kind of becomes uh, this way of putting the Rosie the Riveter genie back in the bottle, right? Yeah. Because in a way. It, it, it's this. Well, I don't know that I agree with that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it's this post war moment yeah. where you have women who were given all this autonomy with, right. you know, the a large portion of the male population away at war. And how do we, how do we um, convince them to sort of 
uh, go back into the domestic sphere. Right. And I think those anxieties are certainly um, a part of what's motivating the film. Yeah, I mean, what quickly we realize ends up being quote-unquote wrong with uh, Ginger Rogers' character is that she works too hard and needs to get a man, which is the simple explanation that the film like outright gives. Like Her psychiatrist says, you need a man to dominate you. But I think by, by the end of the film, I think it ends up in a much more sensitive place and ends up towards an idea of like partnership in a marriage. Well, and I think that that's the other thing, despite the fact that it is, uh, to borrow a phrase from Robin Wood, an incredibly incoherent text. Yes. <laughs> um, it, the emotional trajectory that the Ginger Rogers character takes many times it, it, it feels, it feels real. Yeah, for sure. You, you know what I mean? In a way that kind of, uh, puts you back on your heels when it's, when it can be underpinned by this idea, this ideology that we might now outright reject. Right. But, um, do we want to talk about the musical sequences? Yeah. I mean, there's a quite a lot I want to talk about, but it, it, I think because it's somewhat unwoke, I think it's able to get at um, certain... Welcome to Somewhat Unwoke with <laughs> Jake and Scott. I think it's able to get at somewhat cert- somewhat uncomfortable anxieties about uh, the over-reliance on work as a pacifying force in American life. Um, it is in some ways un- unfortunate that it's about a woman and that it is so prescriptive in the solution to that. But I mean, personally, as somebody who has very few career ambitions and is immensely satisfied in his personal life, I, I don't think the, the nature of <laughs> the nature of, uh, Wait, what was that? I don't know what you're doing. Like, it was like, uh, when he said immensely satisfied in his personal life, I imagined he was wearing like suspenders. Oh, like, like, okay. Yeah, I could see that. Like, um, I thought you were doing oh, like, oh. who's got two thumbs and is immensely satisfied. Yeah. I, I, that's what I think you're doing as well. Um, I'll take either. Um, but no, I, I don't think the notion of somebody being, you know, working too hard and realizing that they want something else out of life is like such a ridiculous concept for a movie to take on. And I think the movie takes it on with a degree of sensitivity, like we said, that uh, is admirable. And because it's so weird about going about it, it's uh, very engaging. I mean, the whole film is like bathed in turquoise and that's even before it gets to these dream sequences where who was in the audience at the circus? Like Easter eggs? Eggs. Yeah. They're they're (laughs) eggs. This circus sequence is, is terrifying. (laughs) Um, yeah. Ray Milland is like a carnival barker ringleader. Um, we should also mention that he's one of three um, possible suitors right. for the Ginger Rogers character in her real life. And of course, these dream sequences just repurpose the figures from her real right. life into these uh, dreamscapes. Uh, again, it's a musical. Kind of. <laughs> but yeah, many songs are, they kind of start and then just like they're given, they're given like a little refrain. Yeah. And then they end. There's like one outright musical number. Yeah, there's one musical number that uh, does derive from the stage right. show, and from what I understand, is like an actual jazz standard. Yeah, it seems that way. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, just a bizarre movie. I don't know what. How did you, how did you uh, take it as a way to wrap up? Uh, I mean, I adored it. It was one of my favorites of the festival. That and street scene, um, and I think it calls upon a lot of things that Ginger Rogers was often asked to do on film. Um, in terms of being a dramatic actress, but also it kind of taps into a certain uh, hardness that she has and a certain uh, rigidness that 
most of the time she's playing kind of carefree gal. Um, but her, uh, certainty in this film and command of the screen is very, uh, is very interesting. Yeah. And, um, once again, returning to like how actors, uh, their physicality on screen. I think yeah. she also, um, her physicality changes over the course of the film in some very interesting ways. Like immediately you see Ginger Rogers is not walking the way Ginger Rogers does when she's acting opposite Fred Astaire. I think it's, no, I hadn't quite keyed into that. Yeah. It's too bad. This film isn't available anywhere else. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Except on nitrate print. film, I guess poor, <laughs> poor Mr. Bass. <laughs> Never going to see it. It's shit out of luck. <laughs> it was a gorgeous print. Um, Indeed. All right. Any final thoughts? It was a strong year. Yeah. Yeah. I I already said what I, about the comedy thing. It was a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, much like David, I didn't see a film that I felt I wasted my time with. I mean, I, I think, um, also just, uh, all the volunteers and all the people who staff the fest. Yeah. I think it's so clearly a labor of love for them and it's just a really well run festival. Um, yeah, I mean, as uh, as someone who attends uh, and loves attending San Diego Comic Con every year, <laughs> I appreciate volunteers who actually know what yeah. the fuck is going yeah, on. For sure. um, Even when yeah. they do have a revolt on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I had a, I had a great time. I love uh, uh, I, I I love the twice a year uh, excuse to hang out at the Hollywood and Highland uh, because it's Cabo Wabo <laughs> and also we haven't mentioned sweet which is great the uh, well, I don't like candy you, Scott weirdly doesn't like candy which is like but I do like it in my yearly yogi dog at Hollywood and Highland so what's a yogi dog at uh, it's on the opposite side of Highland as the Hollywood and Highland complex but it's this tiny hot it's not a hot dog stand it's an actual like you can walk okay. into it but it has great bacon wrapped hot dogs oh, and okay. twice a year I get at least one uh, I like to go to Sweet because they have all sorts of weird. They have all sorts of weird candies, like the limited edition. Like I didn't get them, but now they like this time they had the uh, strawberry peanut M and M's, which is weird. That is uh, strange. <laughs> but they also carry some like not not around the world, unfortunately. So they don't have like my beloved cherry ripes from Australia, <laughs> but from other parts of the country. They carry stuff, including the Pearson's Salted Nut Roll, which is one of my favorite candy bars uh, and was uh, commonly found in vending machines in Missouri where I grew up, uh, but um, not uh, not anywhere else. And so I made sure to get uh, – before we saw Detective Story, I was like, <laughs> I got one more movie. I haven't gotten a Salted Nut Roll yet. Time's running uh, thin. Uh, yeah, so I got that. But uh, no, my, I mean, my real uh, favorite thing about TCM Fest is not just the movies, but also seeing – uh, uh, the friends, including yeah, for sure. friends of the show, like you mentioned, Mariah, Kristen Sales was there. Matt, uh, Matt Patterson ran into Wayne Fetterman. Um, uh, a, a lot of a lot of people that uh, uh, that have been on the show and that I enjoy talking movies with, uh, I, I got to see. So I look forward to next year's festival. Um, you guys, thanks for being here. Uh, you guys at home, you can find, uh, of course, my write-ups of the movies, the eight movies that I saw at battleshippretension.com and there's all sorts of other movie reviews and stuff there uh if you want to uh email me or tyler uh, it's david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com if you have any questions for our mailbag segment ask me ask bp uh those go to me david at battleshippretension.com also follow us on instagram we don't usually say that <laughs> but our, there's actually actually having some activity on our, our instagram account it's just 
you know, at Battleship Pretension. Uh, follow that. Uh, listen to Tyler's other podcast about Survivor. I normally wouldn't say that, <laughs> but uh, if you've been paying attention, this week Survivor uh, caused quite a stir. Yeah, I heard something and, huge happened. Uh, it, it did. I, mean, I don't watch the show, but I definitely yeah. watched uh, this on YouTube this morning, and I'm looking forward to Tyler and Jenny ta- uh, getting into it and talking about it. Um, and we'll probably address it on the next movie journal as well. Uh, so that's that. And uh, where can people find you guys? Let's start with co-host Scott. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. I'm at BattleshipPretension.com, of course, and at CriterionCast.com, where I wrote about all these TCM movies. Yeah, but Battleship Retention is in first position. <laughs> this is a routine you do every time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm just going to get my usual answer. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at FilmBart. And uh, could I actually plug something that's not mine? Oh, sure. Um, for those of you who are interested in the career of Irene Dunn, there's a great book of feminist film history called independent stardom by emily carmen um it is a great read and uh worth your time for anybody who likes reading about film all right awesome uh so um i said everything so thanks for listening we'll get you next time bye you gotta say bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 